Welcome to the Big Drink Rethink podcast with me, your host, Anna Donaghy. If you've noticed that the drinking culture in the UK is changing and you're curious about why and what this means to your world, then this is the podcast for you. Throughout this series, I will be chatting with the thought-provoking, forward-thinking people at the heart of this shift to find out what makes them tick and to explore the sober curious perspective from all angles. And I'll also be giving you oodles of personal tools and tactics to help you get on board the big drink rethink. So today I am welcoming William Porter to the show. William is an ex-paratrooper who served in Iraq and he's now a lawyer and the author of the rather brilliant book, Alcohol Explained, which is often described as the definitive guide to understanding alcohol. And it was certainly very powerful for me when I was working on my relationship with booze. Uh, William's second book in the series, Alcohol Explained 2, sets out some really useful tools for those of us looking to retake control of drinking or, as he describes it, retake control of our lives. So welcome to the show, William. It's lovely to be talking to you. I've been looking forward to this a lot. Hi, Anna. Really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no worries at all. Pleasure's all mine. Given your past and mine, I know we're going to chat about a, a number of things today, but do you want to start off by summarizing how an ex-paratrooper uh, and lawyer came to write some pretty seminal books on alcohol? It won't be a massive surprise to hear. It was it was neither of those things particularly. The, the main reason I came to do it was obviously my own drinking, which um, escalated and escalated and escalated. Um, I, I started drinking when I was about 14 or so, um, and w- we always went out to get drunk, So, but we were weekend drinkers, so, you know, Friday would come and we'd go and get as drunk as we could and then do the same Saturday and sort of recover Sunday and back to obviously what was then college, but then became university and then work um, during the week, and it, it, it kind of escalated and escalated, and there were a few particular things that I think increased my drinking I suppose if you can look back and sort of target the bits where it escalated one of which was working out that when I um when I because what I would find is when I drank I would wake up in the middle of the night you know your heart beating really fast unable to get back to sleep feeling really anxious and I found that a couple of drinks would send me back to sleep very nicely so that was kind of a stepping stone in the wrong direction because you kind of open that door to sort of drinking, falling asleep, waking up and drinking again to get back to sleep. Just before I went out to Iraq, I was doing, I did two months build up trainings, but it wasn't two months solid training. You, you know, you go off to this base to do this aspect and then have a few days off and then that base to that aspect. And obviously I was anxious anyway about going out there. And so what I started doing was drinking in the morning when I wasn't, tra- when I was training, I wasn't drinking obviously, but when I was, wasn't training, I, I would wake up feeling nervous and I sort of found if I had a drink, I felt so much better. Surprise, surprise. So that started me sort of day drinking and morning drinking. When I actually went out to Iraq, it was completely dry. So I did sort of six months of not drinking, but came back and those what I understand now but didn't quite appreciate at the time so well I'll have six months off alcohol so I'll do kind of a reset and I can go back to normal when I come back of course it doesn't work that way whatever level you hit you very quickly go back there when you start again so returning from there my my normal drinking would be I'd start drinking Thursday night Friday lunchtime drink through the day wake up in the night 
drink, fall asleep, wake up. So, so, so you know, <laughs> very hard drinking for four, sort of 48 hours or so. Um, and then the problem then is as the years go by, you're drinking more and more and it became more and more likely that I'd start drinking again on a Sunday and then wake up in no fit state for work on a Monday and ring in sick. And then, of course, you're lying there anxious and miserable and you've got nothing to do and you start drinking again. So it was getting more and more out of hand. Um, and then I stopped drinking 10 years ago this February coming. So it was February 14 I stopped drinking, having come out of I think I'd gone out for a business lunch on the Tuesday, started drinking, rang in sick, start, carried on. And I I think I sort of crawled out the other side of that on a Saturday afternoon, not knowing really what had happened. My wife and kids had left. I hadn't been into work for a week. Um, and that was, yeah, that was my last drink. So that's when I stopped. Um, and then fairly shortly after that, actually, so I stopped in February 14. And I think Alcohol Explained was published first of all in April 15. So it was, you know, just over a year after that that I'd written and published Alcohol Explained. Mm. You've obviously got, you're talking there about sort of a history of it building and building and building mm-hmm. until I suppose what you're describing there about, you know, your your wife leaving, the kids leaving, that was a sort of a rock bottom. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, any anyone would describe something like that as a sort of a rock bottom, but still... Within all of that, when you were at your lowest, I guess, from an alcohol point of view, you started researching. You were doing work. You were interested. It wasn't a sort of, oh, this has happened to me. You know, I can't do anything about it per se. There was obviously something within you that sparked the interest to sort of really get to the bottom of it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the thing. And this is, you know, it might surprise some people to think, well, hang on, you stopped drinking and less than a year later, you've written a book. Mm. What what do you know, (laughs) having experienced, you know, a a year? And and of course, anyone who's written a book knows you you start writing long before it's published. But what I've done, you're quite right. I've been thinking about it and analysing it for years. So by the time I came to stop, I kind of had like 70, 80% of it there. So it wasn't like I stopped and then learned about sobriety. I'd done it for years previously. Um, and what it really was, was a, you know, a little bit of science, some fairly basic science mixed in with my own experiences. Mm. Because when I started drinking, it was like a sociable thing. I'd be out with friends and we'd be drinking. But in, in the later years, I didn't want to be around people when I was drinking because I was drinking to such an extent that I, I, and I was properly intoxicated uh, and I was in no state to be around people. And, and that put me off being around people and drinking because I just wanted to sit on my own. I didn't want to have to pretend to be sober or to watch what I was drinking. I wanted to be on my own so I could drink as much as I wanted without having any, you know, having to put on any kind of show or pretend I was sober or watch what I was saying or anything. Spent an awful lot of time just slumped on a sofa in front of the TV, just drunk, really. Um, and and I think I, I was thinking about why I was doing it and sort of picking it apart. And as I say, sort of feeding in a little, you know, some basic science about how our body and brains work and what alcohol is. Um, but really then piecing together, you know, what's going on chemically, physiologically, but most of all psychologically that makes you keep wanting to go back to it. Mm, no, that makes total sense. And I can I can really relate to that as well. I think it, it kind of stacks up, I suppose, to that sense that 
you know, I have these days that anyone who finds themselves in that situation, anyone who is finding themselves in a situation where alcohol is taking over or has well and truly taken over, it is incredible what arming yourself with some facts and some understanding can do. Because for, for many of us, it's the first time that we're kind of digesting some of the science and you know, you know, in books like yours, for example, and specifically yours, that science is made is is made really accessible. Um, it's not written by a scientist. It's not written no. by someone who is there to sort of show off their prowess in the field. It's written by someone who's just trying to work out, whilst also going through their own experiences, what the hell is happening, um, and and why alcohol is effectively working the way it, the way it does. Mm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. so powerful. I mean, I um, I'm a big believer in that whole sort of knowledge. Knowledge is power, and you you don't have to scratch too far below the surface of alcohol to start getting the kind of knowledge that makes you think, oh, okay, now that makes sense. I can relate to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think so. So I I read a few books on it. I read out I think Alan Carr, um, and Jason Vale, and I think. They're really good books. I enjoy both of them. But what I was looking for, because both of them say alcohol is addictive, but neither of them really explain how it's addictive. And, and I never thought of it as addictive because, you know, most drinkers don't drink in the morning. They can drink regularly every evening, but not in the morning. Or you get people like me who drink heavily during the weekends, but then stop during the week. Whereas that wasn't what I thought of as addiction, I would be thinking of cigarettes, where you wake up in the morning and you reach for your cigarettes and you smoke throughout the entire day to bedtime and you go to sleep and then you start again the next day. And to my mind, saying alcohol is addictive, I couldn't even get over that first hurdle because I was thinking, well, it, you know, you have people drinking for decades who don't drink in the morning, who only drink like I was doing. You see, I drank for like 25 years and and although when I had this so the reason I didn't drink during the week is because I worked out very early I couldn't do my job when I'd been drinking the night before I didn't sleep very well and I couldn't concentrate and you know as a lawyer you need to be able to get your head around sometimes some quite complicated ideas and concepts so that was my drinking habit, but I couldn't, you know, I was drinking for 25 years, but, and even though I was drinking all the time when I was drinking, I would either Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, whatever, come out the other side and, and, and sort of sober up for a few days. So I could never really understand, or I could, I, although people said alcohol is addictive, I couldn't quite relate to that. Yeah, no, I, and, I, and I think it's also, you know, made more complicated by the fact that there is really no definition of, of addiction no. it's really really yeah. personal um yeah. you know i know people who may only drink one glass or two glasses of wine a night but my god they have to have them mm. you know they're not yeah, they're not high volume yeah. they're not they're certainly not the sort of stereotypical image of people who are stumbling around and sleeping in skips and you know for, falling in and out of bars and drinking at you know drinking perno at nine o'clock in the morning they're just people muddling through life but whose attachment to just those one or two drinks is really quite emotionally strong. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, I think, you know, we have, we have views of what somebody who's very, very addicted might look like, 
but then all of that kind of we almost have to self-define addiction um and we definitely self-define normality because we can look at lots of other people and say well they're a normal drinker i'm a normal drinker if that's how much they drink then i'm fine i think it's it's a lot of gray areas in there isn't there there is and you know i i remember right back in my 20s there was a girl i was working with and she would only drink at weekends but if she didn't have that drink at weekends she became extremely nervous and agitated and again that kind of made me think well how's that addiction because you're going five days fine without this thing and suddenly it's a friday and you need to have it well actually that was you know very similar to what i used to do Uh, and what, what i had kind of worked out is obviously alcohol it's a drug you know a lot of people sometimes struggle with that concept but it is a drug it alters how you feel it alters your brain chemistry and it's it's a sedative, so something you know a, a depressant. When I use the term depressant, I'm using it in its chemical sense of something that decreases or inhibits nerve activity. And I think most people are kind of on board with that because they think, yeah, okay, I have a couple of drinks and I feel more relaxed. I have too many drinks and I get intoxicated. That's the sedating effect. But where it gets a bit more interesting is when sort of factor in the human brain creates and excretes its own array of chemicals, drugs, and hormones. Um, And it's a very complicated process, this, and we don't fully understand it. But what we do know is it works by something called homeostasis, which is a balance of all these chemicals, drugs, and hormones. So there's all of these different things in your system all of the time. They wake you up, they put you to sleep, they make you feel happy, sad, excited, whatever it is. But your brain's constantly trying to create this balance. Now, when you introduce something like alcohol, your brain senses, it knows that there's a disturbance to that balance and it tries to counter it. It does it in lots of different ways, one of which it it produces more adrenaline and cortisol, which is a stress hormone. But what it's trying to do is counter the sedating effects of the alcohol. So when the alcohol wears off, that oversensitization, that extra stress that it's created to counter the sedating effect of the alcohol remains. And it's a feeling of being like uptight and anxious. And it's why I couldn't sleep at four in the morning. I was going to say it it's explains usually, your your manic episodes in the middle of the yeah, night. Yeah, exactly. That insomnia. Um, and of course, there's two ways you can get rid of that unpleasant feeling. One is to just sit and wait for a few days until your brain chemistry gets back to normal. But the far quicker way of getting rid of it is to have another drink. Because what I sometimes liken it to is your brain chemistry is out of whack because it's it's geared up to work under the stating effects of alcohol, but the alcohol's gone. So introducing another drink immediately makes you feel a lot better. I sometimes liken it to, you know, those memory foam mattresses. Well, they're oh, quite yeah. hard and you lie on them and they slowly sort of sink into your... <laughs> so, so, you, so when you get up, there's like a U-shaped <laughs> shape in the bed. That's basically what your brain does. So, you know, you you put a drink on there, you put a shape of something and it slowly sinks in. And when you leave it, you remove it, there's a hole there. That's what you're doing almost to to your brain, to how you feel. You're taking this drink and then when it wears off, there's a, you know, there's a drink shaped hole in you. You needed other drinks to like feel better, to feel normal. And I realized that was what I was doing when I was waking up feeling horrible. Of course, the drink would make me feel better. But, and I suppose this is the key, it was never making me feel better than had I never drunk in the first place. Because yeah. waking up feeling awful and having a drink and then, oh yeah, that feels really good, is no better than 
now when I have a good night's sleep and wake up and think, oh, I feel good this morning. I'm nicely well refreshed and slept. Yeah, no, I get that. And I th- there's a phrase I heard a while back, which really resonated with me because it's exactly what you've just described there, which is that alcohol can only ever give back what it's taken in the first place. Yeah, precisely. But, you know, so, yeah. but, but you don't necessarily equate that feeling of, of low with the alcohol, um, or at least even if you do, you certainly connect the feeling of getting back up with another yeah, drink. Yeah. Um, That's absolutely it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes yeah. total sense. So I suppose you're waking up in the night at three o'clock or it's three thirty. You're you're having trouble sleeping because you've got adrenaline and, and cortisol racing around your system. Um, and of course, the sedative nature of a drink can bring it back down. But that adrenaline and cortisol is only there in the first place because of the body's reaction to the alcohol exactly yeah it's bonkers isn't it when you think about it i think sometimes even just being able to have because i'm quite a visual person and even being able to have you know like kind of like that roller coaster image in my mind the idea that actually you know left to its own devices our bodies are pretty smart you know that homeostasis thing that you're talking about our ability to by and large i mean not you know, I know it's this slightly oversimplification, but sort of by and large, the body's pretty good at telling itself where it needs to be and reg- regulating itself. And and alcohol is just, I guess, one almighty disruptor. Really is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is this was the thing. So so I kind of I got my head around that aspect, and it was like, okay, so that's why I wake up and I can't sleep, and you know, I might be absolutely exhausted, but I can't get back to sleep because of all these stimulants in my system. But where I was still sort of struggling was, okay, that's fine, but you know, I stop on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, whenever, and I'm okay for a few days, but then I'm going back to it on on the Friday. And and again, talking about that girl I used to work with who used to get very agitated. And what I kind of realized from my own experience is aside from what was going on physiologically, there's psychological things going on. And one of the main ones is what it's craving. Um, So so I started really analyzing craving because craving is one of those words that we use it. And and we, we kind of think of this thing, it's it's, like, it's almost like a bolt of lightning that comes out of nowhere and hits us and, oh, I'm craving and it's deeply unpleasant. But, you know, stopping and really analysing it, I found massively powerful because you can, it's a conscious thought. Um, and what I found from my own craving, it was very specific. It was like, so, so the thought of a drink would enter my head and I would start fantasising and obsessing about it and almost teasing myself with the thought of it. And I realized this is why I could get through the week quite happily not drinking. But when Friday came, I couldn't. And I might be doing the same thing, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I might be going in, having some dinner and sitting in front of the TV. But when I tried to do it on a Friday, because it was in my, it's Friday, it's drink day. Hmm. Oh, how would it be like to have that beer? Wouldn't that be nice? And wouldn't that feel good? And blah, blah, blah. And as soon as you're doing that, you're not concentrating on what's going on. So like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, work's a drag. You get home. It's nice to get home, sit down, have a meal. That is inherently enjoyable. But it's only enjoyable if you're paying attention to it. And if instead of paying attention to the fact that you're relaxing and having a nice meal, you're taken up with this 
unpleasant internal tantrum, this torture process <laughs> by, oh, I really want this. Why can't I have it? You know, you're not concentrating on the TV or the sitting down and relaxing. So at that point, the alcohol becomes a placebo entirely. It's not the chemical nature of it. It's just it becomes a huge distraction. But of course, the way the, one of the easiest ways to get rid of that distraction is just to have the drink, because when you're having it, you're not obsessing about it. So when you take the drink, suddenly, oh, I can relax and enjoy sitting on the sofa, having a meal, watching TV because I'm not being distracted by it. But you are and then, I found, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, though, but you are then attributing that total feeling of relaxation to the drink. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's exactly what you said before about it's not giving you anything, it's taking. It's taking away your ability to enjoy an inherently enjoyable situation. And then by having the drink, it's then letting you back to enjoying it. And it was kind of a big eye opener to me because I realized that's true of holidays and Christmas and social events and everything. Because when I stopped drinking, it was kind of of the mindset that I can't keep doing this. It's completely unmanageable for me, but I'm going to miss out on this huge benefit, this pleasure. And one of the things, for example, was how can I go on holiday and enjoy a holiday without alcohol? Totally, yeah. But then when you stop and actually think about it rationally, you know, what's enjoyable about holiday? It's somewhere nice and warm. You get to sit and relax. You don't have the stresses and strains of work. You haven't even got to cook or clean or anything. You know, how can a sedative, something that dulls you, make that more enjoyable? Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I used, I, I mean, I'm smiling because... I used to go, and remember, we spend an awful lot of money on going to the oh, most beautiful God. places, and they are yeah. our most precious times of the, the year. You know, we have X number of days, use them wisely type thing, and we'd spend an awful lot of money going on holiday, and I would drink solidly, solidly. I'd be like, woohoo, school's out, and I would drink solidly such that I, you know, I would come back needing a holiday. I would come back broken. And I would come back probably having enjoyed or, or or maxed out on, you know, a tiny fraction of what that place and what that location had to offer because my main activity had been drinking throughout. Um, yeah. And as you quite rightly point out, anesthetized to some of the stuff that basically is in itself inherently joyful. Um, literally dumbing down, literally dumbing and numbing down the experience of being in this lovely place. Exactly. And it's, this is the thing. And I think this is where we get to, and it's almost, well, it is, it's seen as normal. It's like, I, I won't enjoy it. And I say, I sometimes say to people, particularly, do you remember last summer where all the holidays were getting canceled and people were like <laughs> turning up at the airport and they're playing and they had to just go home. And it's like, oh my God, my holiday's gone. And I, I was saying to people, imagine if you get a phone call from the holiday company and you're like, oh, my God, my holiday is going to be cancelled. But they said, no, no, we've got some good news and we've got some bad news. The good news is the holiday is going ahead, but the bad news is there's going to be no alcohol. Mm. Most people, that would be a real kick in the teeth for them. But yeah. again, it's, it's, it, it kind of, it's to do with the degree to which there's a level of acceptance of, toler of reliance on alcohol. So you, you've got the physical dependency and you've got the psychological dependency. Any drinking requires a degree of dependency. 
but within society, it, it's normalized and accepted. See, if I say to a group of people, hands up who thinks a night out with a night out with friends is more fun if you're drinking, everyone puts their hands up, right? It's, a, mm. it, it's, a, it's almost taken as a fact. It's, you have more fun if you're out when you're drinking. But if you say hands up hit who here is psychologically, if not physically dependent on a drug to such a degree, they can no longer fully enjoy themselves without alcohol. No one puts their hands up, but it's the same question. You need alcohol in order to have a good time with your friends and you don't have the same without it. Yeah, you believe you believe you need alcohol. Yeah, yeah you have and, to have it, and it's that strong. It's that strong, strong belief, isn't it? It's that sort mm. of and and you know, it's it's subconscious um, until obviously you raise it to the conscious and you ask a question like that. I mean, I would, I would never have sort of walked around for all those sort of decades that I was drinking, thinking you know, I must have alcohol, I am dependent on alcohol, and I can only have good fun if I have alcohol. But you're absolutely right. If you'd have said, well, we're all going out tonight, and we're not drinking, I'd have been like, there's no point. There's literally no point. I would have stayed, I would have stayed in. And, you know, I'd rather stay in and drink than go out and, and not drink. Um, yeah, you see it a lot, sort of particularly around dry, dry January as well. There's, you know, you see people who, so these are people who drink regularly and they give up for January. But to my mind, there's, I was going to say right or wrong way. There's no <laughs> right or wrong way, but obviously there's a good, a good way, but maybe a better way. Um, but some people are there and you, you hear these conversations at work where people say, oh, you, do you want to come out for a drink tonight? And it's, no, I'm doing dry January. So yes. it's like, I can't. I can't imagine socializing without alcohol. So for me, dry January means not socializing. Um, and in a way, you're kind of just, you're just feeding into that myth that I cannot socialize without alcohol. When I, um, when I coach people and we're talking about that whole alcohol mindset, I do say let's take a, a month off. Obviously, it doesn't have to be January. Some people love to do it in January because it's sort of socially it's more acceptable in January. But um, ultimately, it's like we're going to take a month off. But please, 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 please carry on during this month doing everything you would normally do. We're not going to be a hermit for a month and we're not going to mm. sort of sit at home thinking, what's the point of life? Um, the whole point is to go forth and experience everything you normally do as a comparison without the alcohol and, you know, see a good night out with friends as being a good night out with friends. Friends are joy. Friends are good company. It's not the alcohol that makes it so. It's the fact that they're your friends, um, you know, or walk in the country does not have to end in the pub. The walk is nice anyway. It's it's sort of that that sort of thing and it's it's really – I think it's really eye-opening when people, you know, do do spend that sort of month, as I say, going about their usual business, but going about it without alcohol, that they realize that life doesn't stop. And actually, no. there are some really lovely pleasures in doing things without alcohol. And my God, they feel better at the end of the month as well, to boot. That was one of the things I found when I when I quit, because again, when I quit, I was very much of the opinion, I, I don't consider myself a particularly extroverted person. And I always struggled a bit interacting with people socially and so for me alcohol was always a great thing to have because it helped me kind of relax and socialize so very much my view was I'm not really going to enjoy social events again um 
But interestingly, again, delving into kind of the physiological and psychological side of it, when humans, so, so you've heard of endorphins, I'm sure all your listeners have heard of endorphins, they're a drug that your brain creates and excretes that makes you feel good. And you get endorphins, I kind of think of them as like survival of the survival of the species kind of thing, because when you're doing something good for you as an individual or for the survival of the species, you get an endorphin hit. So you get it when you eat a healthy meal, you get it when you exercise, you get it when you have sex, you get endorphins. Um, and rather interestingly, we get endorphins when we socialize. So when you are relaxed and socializing and talking to someone, you get an endorphin hit. Um, and I think there's a few really interesting factors there, one of which is when we start drinking, most of us start drinking when we're socializing. And that wonderful feeling we get when we have a few drinks and we're out with friends we ascribe it to the alcohol, but it's actually a mix between alcohol and endorphins. And the feel-good part of it is the endorphins, not the alcohol. And if anyone's in any doubt about that and you're still drinking, a really fascinating experiment is to take the amount you normally drink and drink it on your own with no music, no TV, no nothing. Just sit in an empty room and drink the alcohol and see if it makes you feel good. And it's a it's a fascinating experience because it doesn't. It makes you feel slightly tunnel, tunnel vision, slightly confused and disorientated, but it's not a particularly pleasant experience. If you're drinking regularly, if you're drinking regularly, there will be an element of relaxation, but that's caused by the previous physiological, you know, that slightly anxious feeling from the previous drinks. But apart from that, there's just that. But what I found really interesting, when I quit, I would go to social events and eventually I would start talking to someone. And as long as you kind of forget what's going on around you and you're interested in the conversation, you get that endorphin hit. And it's something we used to be able to do before we started drinking. Because when you see kids going to kids parties, you know, they turn up, they're really shy. But within a few minutes, they're absolutely tearing the place to pieces. Yeah, yeah, We yeah. all did that. Yeah. But when we started to introduce alcohol to the equation, we suddenly found we couldn't do it without it. Mm. Partly because of what I've spoken about, that preoccupation. Because if you turn up at a social event thinking, oh, I'm not drinking tonight, it's not going to be quite the same you're not relaxed and enjoying yourself as much. So you're not going to get the endorphin hit. And it all kind of feeds into this belief that we need alcohol in, all, in order to enjoy ourselves. There's so much, there's so much wrapped up in what you're saying there though, William, because I think, you know, you're absolutely right. When we were sort of seven years of age, we went to a party, some sort of jammy dodgers and some ice cream you used to cut it didn't it I mean that was that was it it's like show me the iced party rings and I'm like I'm off, I'm off. but actually I'm off but also you know I, I suppose what's really happening there is we had way less inhibitions um we were way less self-conscious than we are now we overthink things when we get older um and we start to believe that yeah al alcohol is is our friend in those situations but I think you know what you're what you're really tapping into is we are supposed to be social species. We get highs from being with other people. If you and, and your experiment sitting on a stool, taking away that stimulus, taking away that connection, you're absolutely right. You know, al alcohol is not the same when you don't have those kind of things going on around you. So it's that process of elimination. Take alcohol put it on one side and you can see that the experience is completely, you know, completely different. And what we're really enjoying when we're being with friends is being with friends and connecting 
and laughing and feeling like we belong. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So one of the things I wanted to just quickly ask you about, because um, you mentioned a couple of times when you were talking about your drinking and how it was ramping up was, you know, you were, you were drinking to manage anxiety and, and nerves. And I just wanted to really, I know it's not a quick subject it's this incredibly complex subject, but I wanted to um, talk about mental health and drinking because, you know, the UK Medical Council describe alcohol as the nation's favorite coping mechanism. And it is astonishing how many of us drink just to manage emotional aspects of our life. Um, and I know sometimes when I talk to younger people and this is the cohort who are drinking less, it is that link between alcohol and mental health that they're, that they're making and they're, they're treating it mm. and, and approaching it with sort of much more caution. Um, can you talk from your sort of knowledge and, you know, the ingredients in your book, et cetera, a little bit about that link about alcohol and using it as a coping mechanism? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's, a, there's a few different threads there, I suppose. One of them is how it affects mental health. Mm. Um, and the other one is using it as a coping mechanism. I'll, I'll deal with the mental health aspect first. And I won't, I won't go into massive amounts of details. I'm sort of conscious of time and it's a huge, huge topic. Sure. But I've kind of spoken very briefly about how alcohol interrupts that natural chemistry, that natural brain chemistry. Now, you may have a mental health issue that's due to an imbalancing brain chemistry, and you may need something in order to try and redress that. It's never alcohol. Okay, it can never be alcohol because whatever benefit, perceived benefit you get from a drink, it wears off after 10, 15, 20 minutes, and it causes a swing the other way. So if you're suffering from anxiety and you have a drink, it reduces it and then multiplies it. It's so, just so a pendulum, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's never the right answer. Mm. The other thing alcohol does, it completely stops you from going into a natural sleep cycle. So, you know, a lot of people just it's just what we do. You know, we're busy people. We don't have, we don't have the time and opportunity to learn about everything. So, you know, there's this kind of perception that you, you know, you fall, you drop into bed, you go unconscious for a few hours and you get up and you're good to go. It's not as simple as that. If you want to wake up physically and mentally refreshed and feeling good and confident and resilient, you need to go through very specific sleep cycles. Um, one of which is REM sleep. REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement because your eyes move even though your eyes are shut. Um, when they monitor people in REM sleep, their brain lights up almost as if they're fully awake. And it's when we dream. And it's hugely important for our mental health. If you're robbed of REM sleep, um, you become increasingly depressed and increasingly disorientated. It really is taking a hammer to your mental health to stop yourself going through REM sleep to say nothing of all the other sleep cycles. Now, I don't know if you've read Why We Sleep by Matt Walker, but Matt Walker is a, is a British um, scientist working out in America. He's considered by many to be the forefront on sleep um, and sleep research. And he doesn't even describe what we go through when we drink as sleep. He calls it alcohol-induced unconsciousness because you're unconscious, but you are not sleeping. Okay, and that's why when you drink, you could be in bed for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours 
and you will still wake up feeling exhausted because you've been unconscious, but you have not been sleeping. Oh my God, I can now, relate to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that impact on mental health is huge. I mean, sleep deprivation is used as a form of torture. Um, you know, when people are drinking heavily, there's a massive increase in suicide. It's, it's a direct result, not only of messing with the brain chemistry, but being incapable of sleeping. And this is what a lot of people describe as the, you know, like the superpower of sobriety, the best feeling. It's waking up feeling refreshed and happy and ready to go. And you do not get that when you're drinking. And it doesn't matter whether you're drinking at the level I was, a ridiculous amount, or if you're just having one or two, because even one or two drinks completely interrupts your ability to go into those natural sleep cycles. Now, what I quite often hear is, but I need alcohol to go to sleep. I do not sleep without alcohol. And the answer to that is, <laughs> I don't want to sound arrogant, but it's not true. Because so like for you and me, Anna, when we go to, we don't drink. So when we get towards bedtime, our brain, you know, I'm talking about that chemical balance and it can wake you up. It can make you feel excited or happy. And at bedtime, it starts to make you feel sleepy. Your brain releases its own naturally occurring sedatives to make you feel calm and relaxed. And that's why we're always told, told, you know, good sleep hygiene, take away the white lights, dim the light, have a nice relaxed atmosphere. It's sending the message to your brain that I am going to go to sleep. And so we then drift into a natural and restorative sleep and wake up feeling good the next day. Now, when you're drinking alcohol, because it is a sedative, your brain stops going through that process because it doesn't need to go through the process because it knows that every night at five, six, seven, eight, whenever it is, this quite powerful sedative is coming into the system to close things down. So if you're drinking regularly, your brain chemistry changes and your brain stops sending you into a natural sleep because it doesn't need to. It relies on the alcohol. So if you stop on day one, you will be awake for hours. You might not sleep that night. But your brain is great at um, adapting and it adapts to alcohol and it adapts when the alcohol is removed. If you stop drinking, you may not sleep on day one, but your brain very quickly realizes the alcohol is no longer present so by day three, four, five or whatever, it picks it up again and you start sleeping normally. Because I even get this from my mum. <laughs> She's yeah. convinced she needs alcohol to sleep. And I'm like, no, you don't. Just stop for long enough. I think yeah. it's, um, and, I, and I guess the thing is as well, because we sort of, we, can, we, we protect alcohol, don't we? If we're drinkers, we sort of protect mm. it. We can sort of not not have a drink for a couple of nights. And then because sleep hasn't improved just like that, you kind of go, oh, there you go. There you go. I'm not sleeping properly now because I'm not yeah. having a drink. And I, it's, it's interesting what you say there, though, William, because it's almost as if it's, um, it, it equates, I'm, you know, I remember when my two daughters were very, very young and you're sort of teaching them to self-soothe. You mm -hmm. have to kind of almost, um, you know, let, let that natural pattern, that natural chemistry, neurochemistry, I suppose, kick in such yeah. that they can fall asleep on their own and don't need either the comforter or the hugging or the cuddling and the rocking and the comfort blankets <laughs> and all the other stuff that we do. It's just allowing the brain to be its natural sedative. Exactly. Yeah. And that's when you go into that natural sleep and actually wake up feeling refreshed. Yeah. So alcohol is, again, just a massive disruptor. And of course, you know, the brain, the brain being the brain, it says, okay, well, if that alcohol is going to do that job, I can go elsewhere and do other jobs. And it just switches off that, that, that exactly. natural sedation. 
Yeah. It's like I say, it's good at adapting and it adapts when you introduce alcohol and it equally adapts when you take it away again. Yeah. And I was, I was asked about this the other day, so I went off and did a bit of a bit of reading, but um, obviously you were saying about alcohol robbing you of the all important REM sleep. I, I read from um, a survey that had been done by mind recently that I think even up to two drinks of an evening, can reduce the quality of your sleep by about 25%. And if you have three drinks of an evening, which isn't, well, I was certainly, I was way more than that. Um, if, <laughs> if, um, if, you're, if you're drinking more than two drinks an evening, if you're drinking three drinks or more, <clears throat> excuse me, you can be actually compromising your sleep by about 40% sleep quality. Huge, isn't it? Really that big. That is yeah. bonkers. I mean, I can remember waking up routinely feeling like death warmed up how could this be I thought I was in bed by 10 but I'd been in bed by 10 having drunk quite heavily now I find I literally and I love this you know I I wake up these days and I, I I'm an early I'm an early riser I wake up at about six but I have never experienced the quality of sleep that I now enjoy it's gloriously deep and restorative sleep you, you you know it's good when you wake up feeling good. That's what it comes down to. And it, it just to warn people as well, not to warn them, but just to give a bit more information. In, if you're drinking regularly, the alcohol never really leaves your system. Alcohol's got a half life of five hours. Okay, what what I mean by half life is it drops to half its level in your body within a five hour period. So if you're if you think if you're drinking you know, a few glasses of wine every night, it never actually leaves your system. So your brain's constantly compensating for that alcohol, just constantly putting in those extra stimulants to try and counter the alcohol. It's always in your system. So when you finally stop, you will find for the first few days, you find it very hard to sleep. But when you get past that, after a few days, the alcohol actually leaves your system and your brain has to can then stop countering it. What people find is they go the other way. They're always tired. And it's partly the fact that these stimulants have been in your system for years and you've now released, removed them. It's equivalent to drinking loads of strong coffee every day and then cutting it out. You just feel really drained and tired. And partly because you can now sleep properly, your brain's trying to play catch up on sleep. Your brain and body are trying to play catch up on sleep. So what people will find is they'll go through maybe three to five days of not sleeping very well. And then after that, they'll just want to sleep all the time. They'll be exhausted. But it's when you come out of that, that you really start to reap the benefits of not drinking. And as I say, for me, the best feeling is that waking up and thinking, oh, I feel good. <laughs> I feel ready yeah. to start the day. As we went, we went, you, know, you just said it yourself, but it was that horrible feeling, the alarm going off and thinking, I feel more tired than when I went to bed and I've got a full day in front of me to try and get through. Literally. It's horrendous. Yeah, no, literally. Yeah. And, I, and, and I think that's, you know, I was talking about, um, you know, the sort of slightly younger generation, let's say, and their, the, the, the sort of the caution with which they're approaching drinking more. I think a lot of it is to do with an awareness of the links of alcohol to mental health. I think a lot of it is also to do with the links of alcohol to low productivity, because if you translate, mm. if you translate that sort of, you know, f feeling like you've been steamrolled in the morning, um, and you know, that although you've been in bed for a good eight or nine hours, you feel like you slept for about two hours. Um, if you, if you add all that into, and now I'm getting up and going to work. Um, I mean, it's, there's a chronic problem. 
I'm, you know, I would assume in a lot of businesses where a good deal, a good percentage of the workforce every single day are underperforming for want of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. They are. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is the problem and it kind of feeds into itself because, you know, that following day you're tired, your brain chemistry is out of whack. I sometimes describe it as that wonderful thing that only alcohol can give because you know, usually if you're tired, you're tired or if you're anxious, you're anxious. But alcohol seems to be able to mix the two together. So you're like exhausted and really tired and drained, but also with that residual anxiety. And of course, one very good way to get rid of it is to have another drink because it anesthetizes. So it takes away the feeling of tiredness. It, you know, it counteracts that chemical imbalance, which kind of leads us on to the other point, which is why it's used so much as a coping mechanism. And the fact of the matter is it is a sedative. So if something bad happens to you, you know, it needn't be massive, you know, just the the everyday stuff, like a bad day at work or an argument with your partner or a bill you weren't expecting or whatever it is, creates that kind of oh, unpleasant feeling. And because it's a sedative, it will anesthetize that feeling. So it takes the edge off it. So over the years, it becomes our go-to coping mechanism. Um, but it's it's a horrendous one as a coping mechanism, because firstly, it wears off awfully quickly and needs another drink to replace it. So having one turns into two and three and more, um, and then it ruins our sleep. So, you know, if something's troubling you on day one, it's going to trouble you an awful lot more on day two if you haven't slept. Yes. Because one of the things, you know, when we eat, our body digests the food, it breaks it down, it takes what it needs, and it gets rid of the rest. I sometimes think of REM sleep as digesting the experiences we have during the day, good and in particular bad. A lot of people, when they're grappling with a problem, if they get a good night's sleep, proper sleep, not alcohol-induced unconsciousness, they wake up the next day with a clear vision of what needs to be done. And it's your brain, your REM sleep, kind of digesting it and amalgamating all those experiences and kind of getting on top of it. And that's really what you're robbing. So it's, so it's a really bad coping mechanism. But the problem is when you cut, stop drinking, it's been your go-to mechanism for years. So what I say to people is stopping drinking, life gets better, but it's still life and it has its ups and downs, particularly its downs. Now, the problem is what you don't want to do is stop drinking. Oh, yeah, everything's fine or not fine or whatever, but you're getting through it. And suddenly you have a really bad day. And then you think to yourself, oh, that's okay. I can reach for my, <laughs> my go-to stress. For, oh, I'm not allowed that anymore. And you're kind of floundering because you've had a bad day and you don't know what to do to alleviate it. So it's worth reminding ourselves that alcohol isn't the only coping mechanism. And what you use as a coping mechanism is going to be deeply personal. So, so for me, particularly because of my time in the military, I exercise. And like going for a run or something, it just makes you feel better. It makes you feel more resilient. Um, I like reading as well, um, books, whatever. Um, and what you're really looking for is something to take your mind. It's, it's almost like meditation. Meditation is about emptying your mind of all the stresses and strains and giving yourself a bit of a break from them. But you don't need to go through a meditation process. Like reading a book for me if it's a good book, I lose what's going on around me and I'm just focused in the story. So even after a particularly bad day, I can lose myself in a book, but it can be anything. It can be, you know, like yoga, knitting, 
stamp collection, whatever it is. And this is why a lot of people pick up hobbies they had before they started drinking because drinking comes in and kind of pushes everything else away. But when you stop, you've got a lot more time and headspace to do things. And it's nice to pick up these hobbies, whatever they are. So when you have these bad bad days, whatever it is, you've got your coping mechanism. So I've had a bad day. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go for a walk or talk to a friend or watch a box set on TV, read a book, whatever it is. But make sure you plan them in advance because, unfortunately, it's real life we live in and you will have bad days. Yeah, for sure. Life gets lifey, as they say, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? And it's just it's just one of those things. And then I I, I, I guess the, the image that I have in my head of what you're conjuring up for me when you're talking there is this idea that, you know, out alcohol is our swiss army knife it's our one tool it's the thing we use for everything mm. if we're, if we're drinking to cope it's our it is our entire toolbox we need a bigger toolbox i think it's you know it's about thinking about as you say deeply personal to different people but we, we need different tools more specific sharper tools for different things because then you can and and, and a lot of the things that you've mentioned the reading the meditation the, the running they are the endorphin-inducing things that themselves, you know, can can give you that that really lovely, pleasurable feeling. Uh, but only once alcohol is out of the way. But you're absolutely right. You just can't say, you know, alcohol has been your crutch and alcohol has been your tool. But we're going to take that away now. You want to replace it. You've got to replace it with with other things. And but I think that's that's so much of the idea again of taking taking a bit of break from alcohol and. And working out what does float your boat, and I, I love, I love that idea of going back to the things that you used to enjoy because you don't, you you don't even have to experiment and find out if you like doing those things. It's about you know casting your mind back and thinking, well, before I maybe got myself into a pickle or I got myself into a place where alcohol is everything, what what did my life have that I really enjoyed before it got before it got smaller mm. potentially. You know, before it before it got smaller, what used to what used to really excite me, and I, I mean, I, I found this whole drinking to cope piece is so so personal to me because I found that when I became a parent, my drinking ramped up. It's actually before that. It was when I went on maternity leave. I mean, I was already don't get me wrong, I was already well ensconced in the world of drinking, and I was you know, put it, putting it away. Um, but I found that when I went on maternity leave, I actually started to drink more at a time in my life when, you know, I should have possibly been gearing up for a more responsible attitude. I was beginning to drink more. And certainly when babies came along, I, I, I drank more than I'd ever drank. And I think it was literally, you know, those kind of stresses of, of coping. It was my go-to by then. It was my only tool my swiss army knife yeah it was uh, you know i found exactly the same i described sort of my military experience as ramping things up but for me parenthood massively did as well so i was drinking very heavily by the time i came to have children having children was for me almost like the final straw because it was the panic of anything else i'd ever done in my life there was an end to it even going out to iraq it was it's six months and then it's going to end but suddenly you've got, this sounds horrible, you've got this child and it's like, this this is forever now. I can't, and, and they, you're, you're awake all the time. We love yeah, them. Yeah. We should just caveat, yeah, we, we love do. our children yeah. here. But. <laughs> Asterix, <laughs> yeah. we do love you. But yeah. it was just, it, it was incredibly 
terrifying. And that, again, for me, like I say, that was the final straw. That really ramped things up for me. I think I had already had, well, A, I had a very established relationship with alcohol. And B, you know, as a, as a perfectionist, um, the sort of the sense of sort of slightly feeling, out, not slightly feeling out of control, totally feeling out of control, um, and the sense of responsibility. And I think I heard, obviously, I'd gone on maternity leave and I heard at least temporarily called a halt to, I think I was grieving for a, a kind of a lifestyle that I had before and trying desperately to hang on to that and pretend to myself that things hadn't changed. Look, I can still put it away like I used to, or, you know, mm. look at me with all my pseudo freedom drinking on my own. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a sort mm. of um, really weird when I look back at it, but it, it means I do have an awful, awful lot of compassion for, um, you know, parents, young parents. And I, 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 I'm going to say this, but it's not just mums, but I do have an awful lot of compassion for the pressures that young mums are under um as well because i i also had real sort of anxieties around whether i was just cutting cutting the grade really i wasn't kind of mother earth i was looking at other people thinking they can do this and i can't do this and this is really really hard and i'm just the inadequacy you know the inadequacies really and sort of oh it was just it was just an unholy time of you know anxiety and concern and i was drinking to try and numb those feelings and for all the reasons that you've just explained yeah making matters a whole lot worse it, absolutely so so that that's very similar to what i found because it was you know usually you have a bad day at work and then you get a bit of breathing space afterwards to kind of you're okay but when you've got children particularly young children you, you've got no breathing space you can't even go to bed and sleep through the night so it's, it's kind of unreal so, so your work home children right through the night and then back to work again and the weekends come but it's the same it's just the children constantly 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 and it felt like having a drink was so important at that point just to kind of have it take a breath almost but it was interesting what you're saying that 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 um analogy of like the, the swiss army knife is a very good one for alcohol and i kind of was just thinking of it you know when you leave all the blades out and pick it up and cut yourself it's yes. it's almost like that yeah. where it's doing you you know whatever yeah, yeah. good you think it's doing it's actually doing you more harm you know you may you may get the stone out the shoe but your hands are all cut to pieces in the process yeah 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 i mean it's it's so interesting because i was I was about to ask you, you know, what what would you recommend if, if, you know, young parents are drinking to cope like that? And I guess, you know, in answering my own question, it's you need to try however hard, you know, hopefully as a, as a team work out who can have some time to themselves and when. I, I look back now and I was, I was considering drinking time to myself. Mm. I, I used to sort of, it, it, it's my reward, it's my treat. You know, I'm being pulled from pillar to post, as you say. I never get any time to myself. This is time to myself, and then I was using that really valuable time, anesthetizing myself, making it worse. Yeah, you know, precious, precious time. You know, sort of refer back to what we were talking about holidays. Mm. Precious, precious time wasted. Yeah, well, literally wasted. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, wait, wasting that time um, on on something as I suppose in a way when you think about it a bit boring like alcohol instead of 
going out and using that time more constructively mm. um, to get to get what I needed, which was space, fresh air, exercise. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the nails in the coffin for alcohol for me was when we had young children, and I would drink and I would wake up because of the alcohol. And everyone was asleep and I used to lie there really tired thinking I could be asleep now. This I don't get enough sleep and I could be asleep for this precious moment where they're actually sleeping for a few hours unbroken, but I'm not because I've drunk alcohol and it's woken me up. My body and brain is crying out for sleep, but I cannot get to sleep because I was drinking alcohol. And that's that, that was a big turning point for me that because it was... It poisoned alcohol for me because, you know, we, we, we go out and this was after I'd stopped and I, you know, you can't help it. You look at a glass of beer or a glass of wine or whatever and you think, oh, that looks good. And I used to think if you drink that, you will be awake at three in the morning. And I kind of, it, it, I didn't do it deliberately, but I realized afterwards it was almost like a, a process I went through to change how I perceived alcohol and I talked before about that pra craving process. I kind of almost reversed that because instead of looking at it and thinking, oh, that looks lovely, that would really hit the spot, blah, 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 I'd look at it and think, that's me awake at four in the morning. And it just... Yeah, it's completely reframing yeah. what it stands for for yeah. you. It, 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 that's exactly what it is. It's a complete reframe, mm. isn't it? It's that sort of moments of pleasure now fleeting yeah and you know re relatively short-lived versus the time you're going to spend awake in the night um compounded then the next day by you know more, more natural and of course you wake up and none, the, the other reason why that drinking to cope is so temporary and sort of fleeting is not just because of the physiological thing where it sort of leaves your body or, or moves into being sort of a depressant it's also the fact that all those things that you need to try and cope with are just still there the next day mm. they're still yeah. there you know it's you're not really addressing any of the problems and I think for me that was one of the things that really sort of kick-started me into looking at alcohol is I realized I was just on a hamster wheel it was absolutely exhausting um it was it was basically killing me, even if the alcohol itself wasn't doing awful, awful things to my inside, which I constantly feared it was. The absolute exhaustion was just devastating. Um, and all that would happen is the next morning I would wake up from a terrible night's sleep. All the things that I had sort of tried to potentially run from the day before were still there. But this time I was now literally so you know, in such a worse position to be able to cope with it. It was ridiculous. And then I'd do it all again and do it all again. It's a definition of madness, isn't it, that? Yeah, it, it, it's funny because when you're in it, you can't, you can't see the wood for the trees. It's not until you come out that you realise how big an impact and how big a negative impact it's having. So I think when you're in it, when you're drinking, that's the time you feel better. So that becomes your like almost like your beacon at the end of the day. It's like, well, just working towards that drink and it makes me feel better. But what you lose track of is how far you've sunk. And, and I think that, again, was another big thing for me. It was like you have that drink and it feels so good and you feel like calm and relaxed and it takes away some of the tiredness. And actually realizing that if I quit, 
I would feel like that all the time mm. was quite a revelation. And it, the problem is it takes time to get there. You don't stop drinking now and immediately reap that benefit. You have to go through that dip before you come out the other side. And, and again, there's, there's a whole psychological thing to this. It's so easy to put it off for one more day. It's so easy to just say to yourself, you know what, Christmas is coming up. I'll wait till after Christmas or it's been a particularly bad day at work or whatever it is. But you're just kind of constantly like hamster wheel, exactly how you've described it. It's just just one more, just one more, just one more. And, and before you know it, years and decades have gone by. And I think that that was what was starting to get to me as well. I was kind of I realized, you know, spoken about the chemical side of a half-life but that's what I was living it was a half a life it wasn't you know I wasn't where I ought to be you know waking up and feeling good all day was a thing of the past and yet it's what you experience all the time if you can just stop drinking yeah I think it's um I think that's such an important thing it's like this half-life because what I, I used to think that drinking made me you know more happy it may be happier it may be more confident more relaxed all those more 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 which meant that it was incredibly hard for me to get my head around the fact that life without alcohol could any could be anything other than a less yeah. a lesser life mm. you know whereas you know it's I think you know the, the most joyful discovery is that actually you know life life you, you when, when you're drinking you just fall into settling for a life that is, you know, tiring. You, you just put it down to, well, this is just mm. life. This is just life, and it's not. No, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's, um, it's, it's when you, as you say, you push through and have a break, and then realize that it's life's just more vivid. Um, life is so much more vivid when you when you stop, or in, you know, in, in some. Because I'm, I'm very conscious that you know, some some listeners will not want to be stopping at all but they can cut down and you can still get all of those benefits you can you know you can still get significant benefits from cutting down it doesn't have to be I mean you and I have stopped but yeah it doesn't have to be that no 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 people I always think of alcoholic Spain as like information and it's giving people yeah. information and it's it's really up to the individual what they do with that information so a lot of people use it to stop other people use it to cut down or I've no doubt some people <laughs> ignore it all and carry on as they were, which is <laughs> entirely their prerogative. It's you know, but then that's that's the point, isn't it? We're all we're all adults, mm. and we can do with that information what we want. But at the end of the day, it's really good to have the information so that you're you're making conscious and informed decisions as opposed to just defaulting to what we've always done. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a, a, any decision if you're going to make the right or a good decision you need the information it's as simple as that you know if you're going to you need to buy a car there's two different cars and you need to decide between them you need as much information about each one as you possibly can so that you've got the best chance of making the right decision and, and that's yeah as i say that's really what alcohol explained is about with alcohol it's giving people the information to understand how it all fits together to hopefully make some better decisions around alcohol yeah, no, well, thank you. Thank you, William, because ultimately it is because of books like yours that we have that information because we know for sort of obvious reasons that it's not pouring forth from, you know, necessarily the government or the medical world or, um, you know, the, the alcohol drinks world. So as I've said before on this podcast, it takes individuals like yourself to have 
really done that groundwork and served it up for us for the first time. So I'm personally very, very appreciative of that. As I said, Alcohol Explained was a really important resource for me when I was questioning my relationship. That's and I fantastic think, to hear. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think, you know, my last my last piece of advice to people would be, you know, read read the book, definitely read the book, but also it doesn't have to be January, does it? It's that sort of take, taking a month, just a month, not not sort of saying to yourself, well, this is forever now, um, or burdening yourself with any kind of long-term commitment like that. It's like take a month to try and clear your system of alcohol and just find out for yourself how you feel different. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way of doing it because it takes a lot of the pressure off as well. You're just sort of seeing how things how things are. And I think if you yeah. if you go about it that way, it can make all the difference. I kind of what I found was I quite often think of it as I quite often think of it in analogies anyway. But I, I kind of thought that alcohol was my life raft, and I was clinging onto this raft in this really tumultuous sea, getting tossed around everywhere. And and the thought of stopping was like being asked to jettison this life raft, which is incredibly scary. But what I found was when I actually did jettison it, I was actually only standing in two foot of water. And I had no need of it in the first place. And I think if you go about it the right way, you, you you very quickly find hopefully something very similar. What you thought you needed, actually you didn't. Yeah, oh, it's a brilliant analogy. I love that. And I'm not going to be able to trump it, so we'll leave it there. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> I've not got a better one. Dolph drats. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. You know, I really, pleasure. really appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening and getting curious. Please rate, review and follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're choosing to listen. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode. And you can find out more about The Big Drink Rethink by heading to my website, thebeliefscoach.com. That's the beliefs, B-E-L-I-E-F-S coach.com, where you will see clear links to the show.